0: All right, welcome to episode six of The Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kadek, and with me I have... Joel dorkes schoolboy,
1: who apparently has a custom of saying it's also season two, episode six. This is going to be uh, a custom. regular occurrence.
0: Where are you, Joel? I
1: am for about 36 hours in Gothenburg. I just moved back from Cambridge. uh, And literally a few hours after I came back, we drove my wife and I down to Copenhagen to view a few apartments because it turns out we're moving to Copenhagen. And that's gonna happen basically when we air this episode, uh, which is in a few days time, I'm moving to Copenhagen. And in between, I'll also go to Stockholm to meet you and do some other stuff. So it's really
0: Everything's upside down. Tumultuous. It just sounds stressful and tumultuous. Um, Everything have... that keeps me away from working on my dissertation. <laughs> right. Which is why you should never ask someone how long they have left on their dissertation, because they may have to move four times in a month.
1: Right. Right. Especially in this field of hours where people are highly
0: mobile. So, Joel, there's a little hashtag MeToo action that happened while you've been sleeping. Um, The managing or the managing partner of Latham and Watkins had to resign from the firm this week because he, quote, had a lapse in judgment for. Oh, that's always a risky phrase. (laughs) Uh, He happens to me all the time. He had a seizure and woke up and realized that he had sent sexually explicit communications of a sexual nature to someone not affiliated with his job, um, directly affiliated. But it was through, and this is why I'm bringing it up on the podcast, it was through this Christian marital counseling, kind of like the one we talked about in The Good Wife, called the New Canon Society. And he was helping this couple, and in helping this couple, he thought it would be helpful um, to send sexually explicit material to the female of the couple. So he was the Christian arbitrator or... What yeah, I, I don't know how long it went in the conciliation process, but that's how the initial contact was made was through um, this conciliation context.
1: That's so 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 inappropriate.
0: It is really inappropriate, and it's it's you know morality clause of your contract. It's you can't you can't get away with that stuff. So 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 he had
1: to step down as managing partner, or yes. he was forced out of the firm entirely.
0: Oh, I good point. I mean, he resigned. Oh, from the firm. He resigned from the firm. Yeah. This was in the US or in the UK in the UK. And this is after Latham and Watkins is posting like billions and billions in revenue. So the firm was actually doing really well. So I bet he just bought himself a new yacht that he now has to resell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, yeah, I don't I don't feel a lot of sympathy, though, not knowing the
1: person or the facts. It it feels just uh, from from what you tell me now that he'll probably I don't know. He'll be okay, probably, given the circumstances.
0: Right. He'll become some consultant somewhere. On, on some less less uh, juicy gossip. Did you see that the the Gar
1: Awards are coming up? The the Oscars of arbitration.
0: Oh right. What? They started
1: posting uh, nominations for the various categories that are open to the public. So I think it's even one per day now in different categories that they are, like developments over the year uh, that you can vote on, and then in April in Paris. I think the week before, or maybe even the same week as ICA, they have the, the the award show.
0: I think it's the week before during the Paris Arbitration Week.
1: That makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And what kind of topics? Do you know what kind of uh, subjects are up?
1: Yeah, I, the ones I've seen so far have been like the you know the best idea suggestion, uh, sort of progressive. Uh, Reform during the year from different people, and the most recent was the, exactly what we've been talking about 49 different times. the the most uh, the best jurisdiction uh, or the best development in oh, a jurisdiction funny. over the year. So basically,
0: the jurisdiction that took the most pro-arbitration uh, stance during 2017. Right. I'm seeing innovation by individual or organization. Are we eligible for that? I think so. We were, or I was, my Twitter feed
1: was cited in a GAR story and with a reference to uh, my co hosting this podcast. So I think we're on the GAR radar one way or the other. So I, if we're not nominated, and let me know, it seems we're not, then I take that as an active choice that we are not. A, Significant innovation.
0: (laughs) but uh, so Oh, so they nominate within themselves. It's not like they crowdsource for nominations after they publish the subject.
1: No, I think it
0: is that they nominate
1: and then they crowdsource so people get to vote. And then they also have uh, closed down categories in which the public cannot vote, but rather guard themselves, make the the determinations.
0: I guess we're not necessarily innovative. (laughs) We're just the first one to do something. No, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, I'm, uh, I'm completely fine. Yeah. Not Maybe you can get know. the Lifetime Achievement Award. Anyway. <laughs> uh, we have an, a great program planned for this episode. We will start by flying over to Lisbon, which I've never been to, um, to talk to Duarte G. Henriquez, who is a partner at BCH Advogados um, in Lisbon. And I talked to him about Lisbon as an arbitral seat. And he serves, he's a partner of that firm, but is also serves as arbitrator in many different organizations. We don't get into it, but he is a member of the Silicon Valley Arbitration Center. Um, they don't administer cases, but I mean, I, anyway, he's involved in, he has, he has many hats. Um, but that's that's The, the guy who
1: wrote this uh, defective tribunal post was also, wasn't he, from the Silicon Valley yes. Arbitration Center, I think.
0: Yeah. Yes. Um, and Duarte has been involved with a lot of third-party funding. Um, literature, writing a lot of third-party funding literature and touring with the lecture series. But we did not, I, re, I exerted some restraint, we did not um, delve into that topic. That was my my next question. Yes. Is this a place of rotation slash third-party funding <laughs> yes. segments again? I'm branching off to a new podcast
1: called TPF. <laughs> good and then we talk about the doctrine of precedent in international arbitration is there such a thing and maybe more interestingly uh, what are tribunals actually doing with with previous awards very very
0: scholarly and at least the uh, the topic but perhaps not our way of presenting it. <laughs> no, I mean as a common law lawyer I f- I'm titillated by the use of precedent, but I understand that that's not necessarily best practices in every situation. Uh, that
1: will be fun. We will once again explore the common law civil law uh, division that we've already actually spelled Yeah <laughs> <laughs> But that's the uh, that's the nature of an inconsistent uh, mind. You, you never know when you'll contradict yourself a few months down the line. Right. And, th- and then for happy fun time, we uh, talked to Kristen Bauer, who is an American lawyer in Hong Kong, involved in the Moot Alumni Association. And there's uh, there's a very good reason we're talking to her now. And that is, of course, that as we record? No? The, yes. The, this moot or, is, is, yeah. Everybody's flying down. Yeah, so once we publish, next week the moot will just the VISMUT in vienna will just have been over so we are talking to Kristen about how to cure your moot hangover or uh, withdrawal uh, problems if you if you just enjoyed the moot too much how do you stay in touch and what do the moot alumni association people do basically
0: yeah and we get a little bit into our, some personal anecdotes about the moot um, because it is a very emotional experience for the people that go through it the first time
1: yeah, which at least half of us of half of the co hosts of this podcast know very well. Exactly.
0: Well it sounds like we have a good program. Let's get started. Yeah. So I am sitting here now with Duarte Henriquez from the BCH law firm in Lisbon, Portugal. Hello. How are you doing? I'm fine. And you? Good, and? good. We are sitting in our offices here at Mannheimer um, on a weekend. It's um, Saturday morning and it's the Vis Primo. You came in to spe-
2: speak at the Viz Primo. Yes. And I know what, what is most beautiful here. Yeah, Whether well, the offices or the weather, it's <laughs> so nice. <laughs> You're freezing. You're freezing, yeah, freezing but, but uh, <laughs> the offices are pretty, pretty uh, uh, cool, uh, warm and, and, and very beautiful. So it, thank you. it compensates. Thank you. You spoke yesterday at the VIS
0: conference, you spoke about third party funding, which yeah. is a topic that you've been covering quite a lot. Yes,
2: absolutely. It, it was really interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's really on the top uh, of the hot, hot issues right now in the international arbitration. And uh, it, it is one of the, uh, the topics of the Vismut uh, case this year. So it's um, uh, completely uh, on top of, of, of everything that we can think about uh, arbitration.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's great that you've done this because you have put your firm and Portugal on the map, which is why we've invited you here. Um, um, you're, so BCH is your firm. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the firm
2: and how well, many lawyers you have? Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we are um, around eight people. Um, it's not a fixed n- number. Uh, but we have been practicing a law in, in Lisbon since uh, 1990, so we are almost uh, on thirties, on our thirties, and um, we've been uh, uh, practicing in our, an arbitration since uh, two, days, two decades. Two uh, decades now. Um, my, my first case was in 19, uh, 1990. Uh, sorry, 2000, um, um, and, and it was a very complicated case. And since then, I've been practicing arbitration, but mainly domestically. So, um, uh, in in terms of the international perspective, we started since uh, eight eight years ago, and then we've started to work abroad and uh, working in uh, in uh, in uh, international cases, and and currently we are doing uh, most uh, most of our cases and big cases are completely international. I mean it. don't have any kind of connection with, uh, with the Portuguese, except the fact that I am uh, a Portuguese uh, lawyer right. dealing with the matter. Uh, but we have been handling cases uh, with, uh, with Chinese parties, uh, with, with Russian parties, and, uh, uh, and also uh, South Korean. Um, and I've been also uh, serving as arbitrator in cases involving international uh, contracts and international issues
0: in Portuguese institutions or all institutions?
2: No, no, not in Portuguese institutions, but uh, but uh, rather at ad hoc setting uh, and using international institutions rules. Uh, for instance, we I've been um, I, I'm serving in a, in a, in arbitral uh, tribunal applying uh, the SEC rules. It's not institutionally, uh, but we are using some 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 parts of the the, the SEC rules. So Interesting. That's not exactly a complete copy of those rules, but uh, we we mainly follow those uh, those, those rules. Uh, but but ma- mostly those those arbitrations are hardlock uh, Okay. Hardlock. And uh, this goes along with uh, with the, po- the tradition uh, of Portugal in in terms of arbitration because um, we there are, have a. Um, a long-standing tradition of having a, a arbitration ad hoc and not institutional. Mm-hmm. I don't know why uh, institutional arbitration is not so popular there, um, but it's becoming more and more used. Uh, but but the, the mainstream of, of the arbitration cases arose out of ad hoc cases, ad hoc arbitration cases. Um, that, that's a particular feature of, uh, of the Portuguese Jurisdiction. Well,
0: let's get into Portugal as a jurisdiction. And I mean, specifically Lisbon as a seat. I, I don't know how popular arbitration is in the other cities of Portugal. I assume Lisbon <laughs> is, is the leading city in that regard. But you've kind of thought of some uh, guidelines and principles that you think make a good
2: seat. And yeah, well, I've, I've been looking at uh, at uh, CR, uh, London principles. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and uh, I, was, um, I was thinking how Lisbon would fit into those principles and uh, how those principles are, are met in, in, in what the Portuguese jurisdiction uh, is concerned. Um, and I think, I, I cannot say that we are uh, meeting with flying colors, all those principles, but we, are, we met, meet all, all of them. Um, all of them are, are, are met. Uh, we have um, uh, um, a recent arbitration act Uh, That is based on the on the model law. Uh, It's not yet fully compliant with with the model law. Um, There's some one or two provision that needs to be um, fine-tuned. But uh, we mainly follow the uh, the model law, the arbitration model law. Um, We also have um, um, some institutions well the, the main institution is the, the arbitration uh, center of the Lisbon uh, Chamber of Commerce and uh, uh, they have uh, uh, a set of, of features uh, and tools for the users and for the arbitration uh, um, environment to be used and uh, we can uh, we can say that that center uh, has the most uh, uh, up-to-date features of, of arbitration, like fast uh, exp- expedited uh, um, rules for arbitration. Uh, they have rules for, for appointing, uh, for for uh, uh, the, the arbitration center acting as appointing authority. I was gonna ask that, because you said there's yeah. a lot of ad hoc, so. Yes, yes. So um, this, this arbitration center has this set of, of rules. Um, they use also um, um, emergency arbitrator, and and also they have enacted a, a code of conduct for arbitrators, uh, which somehow um, incorporates the IBA guidelines. Interesting that
0: the parties have to explicitly agree to, or it's implicit. That it, it's you... implicit. So oh, okay.
2: whenever there's a there's a um, a, a tribunal um, constituted uh, 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 under those those rules, uh, those rules will apply. And mm-hmm. and also this uh, this set of um, rules of conduct are. Um, a feature of the Portuguese Arbitration Association, uh, which um, has, um, I believe that all all the people, uh, every people in in Portugal uh, practicing in in, in arbitration, uh, is member of that uh, association, and therefore somehow are covered by, uh, and bound by those by those rules. Okay. Even
0: if they're acting as arbitrator or counsel outside of Portugal, would they be bound by those ethical rules?
2: Um, yeah, I think I think I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, this is just a matter. I mean, um, being bound by a set of uh, uh, codes, uh, code of conduct, um, is it's like a matter of religion. You you don't change religion if you change your country. Right, right, right. So you s- you'll still be um, uh, bound by those rules. Of course, you have to comply with local rules whenever you go abroad. But yeah. Uh, mainly, you have to observe the, your own rules. In terms of ethical rules, uh, my, my main code of conduct is the, the Portuguese Bar Association uh, Code of, of Ethics. Do you but I also consider, a... consider myself bound by those rules of the Portuguese uh, Arbitration um, Association because I'm a member of that association too. We were
0: talking about, we had dinner the other
2: night, and we were talking
0: about being licensed as a lawyer in Portugal. Yes. Uh, what, is, is it a bar exam like other countries, or what does it take to be licensed? And then if Well, you're if coming you're licensed
2: into the in the EU um, territory, you don't have to um, be assessed in, in any way. just a matter of uh, showing that you're licensed, in, for instance, in, in Sweden. Even if you are American, uh, but if you are licensed in Sweden, you can apply to be licensed in, in Portugal. And it's just a matter of document compliance nothing else and paying your fees of course of course um but but uh, but yes um in what other countries are concerned if for instance if you come from from the u.s uh, directly to to portugal you need um i, I don't know exactly but I, I think you will need an exam right in order to to, to be a lawyer but this goes without saying that <coughs> sorry this goes without saying that if you are practicing in, in portugal and and you are not Graduated at a Portuguese university. Whenever you go to court, you must be um, uh, accompanied by by a local attorney. Ah, oh, okay. And that's that's why I have now some some trainees uh, uh, over 60 years old now. Because <laughs> you have to be there when they. Yes, I, have to be, I call them um, I call them trainees, but of course they have m- pretty much more to to teach me than I. Do. <laughs> and what a. Uh, um so you have this,
0: the Portuguese Arbitration Association, or in so many words. Are there other institutions?
2: Well, that, the, I'm sorry. The Portuguese Arbitration Association does not manage arbitration cases. Oh, right. It's, it's, the it's the just arbitration center. Uh, the association is just for promoting uh, the Portuguese arbitration in Portugal and right. around the world. But in terms of uh, uh, arbitral institutions, administrating uh, uh, arbitral cases, we have this uh, Lisbon Center, which is the most uh, prominent Mm -hmm. but we have also one in in oporto which is not very active Uh, but interestingly enough we have other um, smaller institutions uh, which conduct other kinds of cases for instance you have uh, the the, the arbitration court for sport uh, which have um, a component of um, um, compulsory arbitration uh-huh. So there's a few matters of uh, sports arbitration that, sorry, sport matters that must be arbitrated uh, at that uh, um, institution, and you have have also um, um, an institution uh, to to deal with um, disputes in IP uh, matters with the trademarks um, and copyrights. And patents, uh, which is called arbitrary. It it's a small, a small institution, but handles. Um, uh, it has a, a pretty interesting uh, case law in handling all do- those those issues, and it's pretty fast and and pretty cheap in terms of. of cost. Oh wow! So uh, I must say, contrary to my, uh, what could be my interests as um, as an arbitrator. Because the fees are very low there, right. but but uh, I, I mean its it's it is worth uh, doing those those arbitrations because it gives you a lot of insight of uh, of uh, on on the issues of IP and and technology and trademarks and so on.
0: And you also said there was a tax arbitration center? Yes,
2: uh, that's that's that would be the third uh, specialized center, right. You um, have you uh, as a taxpayer um, in Portugal. Uh, you don't have to be a port, uh, portuguese taxpayer but if you have f- if you are uh, somehow bound to pay, pay taxes in portugal you can dispute those taxes before that that um, um, tax arbitration center uh, if your dispute is up to 10 million euros so and it's also oh, a okay. very uh, fast and comparatively um, cheap solution to, to handle your tax disputes.
0: And is that just automatic? So anytime it's a tax dispute, it goes to this arbitration? Or how does one no, consent to that? It's opt-in. It's, it's opt-in. opt-in. It's okay.
2: opt-in. And then the government has a standing offer to uh, yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So it's a, it's a standing offer from, from the government. And this center, uh, which is called CAT, Center for Administrative uh, uh, Arbitration, as also um, uh, a component of administrative, purely administrative uh, uh, disputes, but they are not so common and not so well known as the tax arbitration. Which you said you had over 20, 30? (laughs) Now we are on uh, over 30 uh, um, cases of our tax arbitration. I personally don't deal with the substantive part of of the tax matters. Uh, I I only do the, the procedural work uh, but my partner there at BCH does all that that stuff, very complicated right. stuff of uh, substantive the tax law. Um, but it, we've been um, pretty pretty successful in those cases. I'm um, um, I'm not aware of any case that we have lost so okay. far. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: know. I'm. I mean, you said you had clients from all over the world, mm-hmm. and and this is no disrespect to Lisbon, but it. I want to know why. Why do you think that these clients have been attracted to Lisbon or your firm as a place to resolve their arbitration? Do you think it's the specific subject matter that you have expertise in? Do you think it is these
2: arbitration rules? No, I don't think that this, uh, those elements that you mentioned play any, any role there. I think it's more the fact that I'm, I've been abroad and I've been in contact with many, many people in, uh, right. across the globe. Uh, and I've, I've been asked to participate in them. In, um, in teams uh, where uh, somehow my expertise is, is is needed. Not necessarily connected with Portuguese matters or Portuguese law or Portuguese language, but, but rather because of uh, my background, right, you know, right. because of that. And that's the reason why I've been uh, also appointed, not as often as I would like, but <laughs> <laughs> often enough. Uh, I've been appointed arbitrator in cases that don't have anything to do with Portugal right. except my, my person. right. So, uh, but uh, but I don't think that the Port- Well, the Portuguese um, facet of of, um, of my uh, practice, as uh, everyone else is in, in, in Portugal, uh, is is and can be pretty much more interesting when you think about disputes that involve um, Portuguese-speaking countries mm-hmm. like Angola and Brazil, mostly. Uh, in fact, if you think of Portuguese uh, language, it's, it's um, um, I believe the sixth um, more uh, spoken language in the world. Uh-huh. So it covers around two hundred and fifty or sixty million people around the world. So uh, it's very interesting because you have uh, the ability to to work for a large spectrum of of people and and therefore of disputes. Yeah. And Brazil right now is. Uh, is bubbling in terms of, of arbitration. Do you feel like there's a little competition there? Um, I think I think that there is um, big competition in in terms of, of uh, in, um, disputes involving Brazilian parties. Uh, but as far as I can see, uh, that competition is among themselves, among Brazilians themselves. I mean, um, you have a, a, a very interesting case law uh, in Brazil. We, we are talking about hundreds of cases a year um, both at ICC new uh, new Center and right. and uh, um, camp CCBC and the, the, all the other um, institutions in Brazil they have a very interesting uh, case law but I think it's mainly focused on on domestic disputes and uh, involving um, purely uh, Brazilian law uh, so it's very local uh, but at the same time it's a very large uh, community and and the spectrum is also very large right um i think that there, this brings um, um a very good opportunity right now i don't i don't think that uh, we the portuguese continent european continental portuguese have um many many opportunities there but but this will come in the future because arbitration is being used more and more there and and uh, of course Portuguese uh, speaking uh, uh, lawyers uh, um, are more than fit to to that job of serving as arbitrator and right. teaming up with uh, with local peop- uh, local teams uh, but but right now I think they are concentrated in, in themselves yeah um, okay. so uh, but but a, it, that's 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 a very interesting market let's yeah. let's see how this uh, goes in the future definitely I, some
0: question that I've asked a lot of people when we've had these interviews for the seat of arbitration series is how the courts, the local courts, act as a support system to arbitration enforcement and challenges. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that unique that you would uh, that comes to mind when you think about
2: the Portuguese court system? Well, as I said earlier, um, not only the, the this institution um, adopted the rule, ethical rules. Making some sort of incorporation of the IBA guidelines, but also that Portuguese association has done so, and therefore you have um, what I could say a framework, a regulatory framework that somehow um, uses uh, IBA guidelines as a source for resolving um, conflicts of of interest. But what I what I find in the in at the Portuguese courts is that they are not so well tuned into this new mindset. Mm. And that was the reason why uh, uh, when those regulations were enacted in Portugal, I criticized this uh, sort of incorporation of the IBA guidelines. Because Portugal is not yet aware of how those guidelines should be um, uh, adopted there, should, should operate right uh, and I think the mindset of the Portuguese is that they would uh, and should operate in a mathematical uh, way I mean if you have three cases where the, the arbitrator has been appointed by the same law firm in the past two years or three years um, people with will, will think that no it this this arbitrator is already conflicted so right. I not it must be challenged and so on and so forth um, so uh, we need to um, get used to the, the proper use of, of the, the IBA guidelines, uh, of standards as the IBA guidelines. And, and the, the Portuguese courts have um, uh, this kind of mind, peculiar, I would say parochial mindset in assessing confl- conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have witnessed two, two cases um, uh, at the Portuguese arbitration, uh, sorry, uh, administrative courts, where um, where the, the courts said very harshly that IBA guidelines are not part of the Portuguese uh, legislation, so we don't apply here. Uh-huh. So that this was the first reaction coming from the Portuguese courts that I was foreseeing when I said that. Right. And uh, but but in any case, uh, we are a small community um uh, we have a peculiar system uh in in relation to um ip uh disputes uh, related to um uh, patents on medicines mm-hmm. and and this has brought a lot of uh, issues concerning the um, the conflict of interest uh, and this happens because the pool of arbitrators is very small the pool of experts is very small right so uh, i think that What is not working properly in Portugal is that the Portuguese courts are not looking at all picture of the IBA guidelines Mm. because the IBA guidelines say um, very, uh, very clearly that uh, the conflicts of interest arising from the repeated appointments should be um, framed when the community and when the pool of experts is small. And that's what's happening in Portugal. So we have uh, a very... Large case law on on um, arbitration related to to patents on medicines because this is another feature. Uh, this kind of arbitration is also mandatory in Portugal to those right. kinds of uh, of disputes. And so, as the legislator has enacted this uh, this system of uh, mandatory uh, arbitration without imposing institutional arbitration, uh, nor thinking about um, the list of the. Of the potential arbitrators, of the of the experts to right. uh, to deal with those matters, and this has made uh, the Portuguese system now, uh, and and the assessment made made by the courts not so uh, straightforward. So, uh, but in any case, I, I think this is a matter of time, and and it's a matter of adjustments that have. Uh, uh, must be done there, and we will certainly, in in a matter of, um, I would say, uh, short years, in the yes. m- uh, come to what is a completely international standard. Because at the same time, this has um, raised the need to uh, open uh, the the pool of, of experts, and so more and more people are getting used to arbitration in those kinds of uh, specific disputes. Um, so I think I think. The Portuguese courts, uh, coming back to your initial question, the, port- the Portuguese courts are um, somehow... Learning. Have, uh, are, uh, well, the, in this particular respect, are learning. But there's, there's another uh, very interesting and very important point where the Portuguese courts have already learned all the lesson. Um, and this is uh, in what the, the principle of competence, competence is concerned. Oh, okay. Uh, we have a pretty... Uh, Pretty standing and, and clear understanding of the Portuguese courts that um, the arbitral tribunal is the competent to decide upon its jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. There's a very um, there are few cases involving uh, swaps. Um, those swaps, as you know, are um, uh, regulated by by master agreements, and those master agreements contain may contain. Uh, arbitration clauses uh, what happened in portugal um before the financial crisis is that m- many people started to um underwrite those those swaps without looking at at the whole framework of all, all contractual framework I, I did not know um even that if they did not even know that they were um, um, um making a, um, an investment in a risky uh, um, product So there are um, uh, um, a lot of of claimants came to to court saying that um, this is a master agreement is is um, is regulated by the standard forms contract. um, uh, Act, Um, I was not aware of what I have signed. I did Mm. not know what I was signing. Uh, And therefore, this contract is null and void. Right. And therefore, the arbitration clause contained therein is also null and void. So, please, Mr. Court Judge, <laughs> declare the nullity of this contract. Right. But uh, um, the, the Court Judge have been deciding uh, contrary-wise. I mean, uh, the judge say, um, is there any arbitration clause? So, you must resolve your dispute at the arbitration. But that's fensive. that's very progressive Yeah, in it's very progressive terms, because at the yeah. same time, you have um, a very, very tricky uh, um, uh, point uh, of, uh, I would say, public interest and cons- consumer protection there. Right. But at the same time, uh, the Portuguese uh, judge courts are uh, uh, redressing parties to arbitration. Right. And upholding uh, the, the arbitration agreement, notwithstanding the fact that this contract most times are not well I would say negotiate it, right? Because, <laughs> because you know it's it's the, the man who owns a small supermarket at the corner of the street and goes to his bank, yes. And and the ca- account manager there says, oh, I have a, g- a very good product for you here. Just put your uh, put your money here and your signature, and they don't care about anything else, right? So, and when when um, there was this crisis, financial crisis, and the swap came to be a completely, um, well, I would say. Um, frustration for for the for those clients, uh, those those claims uh, you know, get started. So we have a very um, interesting case in swaps, and at the same time, uh, uh, holding and that arbitration. the arbitration is a very, uh, well, it's a valid and enforceable mechanism in Portugal.
0: Speaking of the progressiveness of the courts, um, we saw France recently open a. a uh, English-speaking court that would handle a lot of international cases and I know that I think Germany and the Netherlands, well. yeah, the, everyone's kind of tagging on post-Brexit. Mm. Um, is there anything that you think that Portugal is trying to do to
2: increase their competitive advantage? Well, I was thinking precisely on that on that point. No, um, I don't... I, I've never heard about any initiative like that yeah. in Portugal. Uh, and i pretty much doubt that we can have the structure to do so but it, let's see what what the government um decides on on this but I, i'm i've never heard of anything like that right and, and so i think the portuguese um, uh, businessmen are not m- much concerned about about the brexit and, and about yeah. using the need of uh, have a special court deciding disputes involving um, British uh, uh, parties.
0: Is there any reform that you think is co- be coming up in Portuguese like to the arbitration law or the arbitration
2: culture or is it all pretty established at the moment? I think at, at the moment it's established. Now I, 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 it's more a matter of, of promoting the use of arbitration and right. and, um, and and, and promote the benefits of, of, uh, of this mechanism to solve disputes, uh, but that's it. I don't, I don't think there's any kind of reform coming up.
3: Okay,
0: well, I would—I have to say that I, you know, your s- social media presence is very uh, informative, and I feel like mm. anybody who's listening to this sh- should just contact you on LinkedIn or Facebook because you always have the most recent updates coming up on your feed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you for joining us. Oh, and my pleasure. I hope you had a good time.
2: Thank you. Um, thank you. And we'll talk soon. Okay, thank you. Bye bye.
1: So, rhetorical question Is there a doctrine of binding precedent in international arbitration? No. So.
0: It's rhetorical. You're not. So-
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I said that so that you would not jump in and ruin my rhythm, which you did anyway. So thank you. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Continue. So no, there is no doctrine of binding precedent in international arbitration. So segment over. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> no, but uh, this is this is not controversial. Um, most people know this that there is no binding precedent in international arbitration. That being said, it's, it's way, way, way more complicated. And there is still, I think, undisputably a role for precedent in some way in international arbitration. First, the usual caveat, there's a difference between commercial and treaty-based cases here, uh, simply because there aren't that many awards available in the commercial sphere. So I think, uh, as, as is often the case with me, we will talk primarily now about treaty-based cases. But you do a lot of commercial work. How often is it that you cite and maybe also expect the tribunal to engage with other commercial arbitration awards?
0: Almost never. Uh, really almost never. But you do get into maybe some like doctrinal support um, and some general authors, on like scholars on the subject. But very rarely are you citing... A, anonymous Swiss case that is, you know, X, V, Y.
1: Yeah, because you don't have
0: a lot of those. And
1: even if you did, the fact that it's anonymous is maybe
0: not convincing to a tribunal,
1: they can't engage with all the facts, uh, just in addition to what you claim. They can't they can't live beyond what you're saying. If if you have access to a case that they don't have access to. Right, I guess. But then that, that's the, I remember when we talked about commercial, No, oh, sorry, about uh, civil law and common law that you start basically you said your research and maybe also the pleadings or the submissions with references to cases. So in treaty based arbitration or investment arbitration, it's very, very important for you.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So that's the that's the setup I think that we're talking mostly in, in investment treaty arbitration because we have so many, many cases. And also that frankly they typically concern very similar things. So whereas, each commercial case is more or less specific to the case at hand, many investment treaty cases of overlap, both in terms of the applicable treaties, if it's an NAFTA case or an ECT case, in, in particular, you have the exact same provision to get it over and over again, in, in different contexts, but also the, the provisions where you have different treaties, because we have a handful of jurisdictional standards and a handful of substantive standards, and the damages uh, flow typically from, from the substantive standards as well. So they are also relatively similar. Right. So we have the same things coming up over and over again, and they are generally also published. So it's it's a very good, ripe environment to talk about the use of, of precedent. But we don't really have any rules on it. So what happens instead is that we often sort of fall into comparisons and analogies to various domestic systems to have Uh, some sort of uh, reference point to talk about and here as you already hinted at in the in the intro we have I think on one end the hardcore common law approach and on the other hardcore civil law approach that I don't really think exists anymore you have very few unlike what some common law common lawyers would think you don't have a lot of jurisdictions that I know of where there's no precedent of any kind, basically, where every court is an island of itself, starting right. from scratch. Even if there's no formal binding precedent, which there usually is, especially when you have Supreme Courts, there you you will still be looking at other persuasive cases. So the this, this other end of the spectrum to contrast with the common law approach is, I don't think, Isn't very real.
0: No, definitely. And I think that um, there's two ways to think about this. And one is the actual legal binding nature of these decisions, as far as what a court can determine and be persuaded by. But it's also the style in which um, practitioners are drafting their submissions. And so it kind of reflects the legal culture in the sense that a common law lawyer is going to throw in a couple more cases to justify their position, whereas a civil law lawyer might not not find it necessary. So regardless of what the actual binding nature is, the use of the precedent by the practitioners themselves can vary.
1: Right. And I think that is sort of a convenient way out of the, the interesting philosophical question as to whether or not there is a binding precedent, is that the parties refer to cases so much and right. that justifies the tribunals doing the same, basically. So if the parties invoke cases each, of course the tribunal will engage with those cases and try to distinguish them uh, the way you would with a court case, we we'll have doctrine or precedent, uh, doctrine or precedent, and so on and so forth. Right. So in practice, because the parties rely on it, and I think you're right that that is uh, primarily, it was at least driven by the sort of the common law aspects of the international operation world, I think. That once we got a critical mass of cases out there, skilled lawyers, of course, try to use them to support their own arguments. And then tribunals have to address those, basically.
0: Right. No, you're right. So I guess our conversation will focus on the philosophical discussion of whether they're binding or not and to what extent.
1: Yeah, at least a little bit. Uh, it's been a while since I read up on literature. I, I wrote an article maybe four or five years ago about uh, obiter, obiter Dicta. hmm which in and of itself, actually, now that I think of it, is, is also an interesting aspect that ties into doctrine of precedent, so yeah, Definitely. When, when you have, and this is this is bread and butter to, to common lawyers to study in law school, you have to not only learn the skill to distinguish cases so that you can compare the case uh, that is uh, supposedly the precedent with the one you have in front of you and see if, if they actually concern the same thing, the same facts in the same legal manner. But also, the, there's a difference between ratio decidendi and obiter dicta, so the reasons leading up to the decision, the operative parts or uh, the holding, the, yeah, exactly, the holding is much more law school kind right. way of putting it. <laughs> Or then by contrast the 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 orbiter uh, the the stuff that is sort of beside the point something that the court or the tribunal has said in addition to to the holding which isn't formally as binding as the holding but may still serve as as guidance right so anyway i wrote, I wrote an article about the latter part the orbiter dicta and argued that uh, we, we shouldn't do that or tribunals should not do that too much unless it's clearly in the interest of, of the disputing parties because uh, typically law professors who are appointed to tribunals tend to want to develop the law and do that on the party's dimes. And I think there are reasons to, to criticize that. But if you're interested in that, dear listener, there's an article out there somewhere. I can't remember which publication that I wrote about this, but as part of so that, I- So many
0: publications, just like so many. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, them. I can't remember the four different articles I've written. <laughs>
1: Uh, But then I read up on basically everything that was on the topic. So with reservations for uh, any major masterpiece that's been written since then, uh, actually, there should be really, because since then, simply speaking, the amount of treaty-based cases has just exploded. Right. And as a consequence, this should be much more of a live issue than it was
0: you know, before. we kind of touched on this in our article that we wrote together in some journal. I can't remember because I have so many publications, um, but we wrote about <laughs> that's a joke. Um, we wrote about. Oh, sorry. Sorry. You <laughs> have to say it before. But it's a joke. So I know. Uh, I to laugh. <laughs> Listen, this comedy is gold. Joel, I need you to appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> these Venezuela cases, the two cases against Venezuela that went in annulment and in the stay of enforcement or the continued stay of enforcement proceeding phase. Um, there was a discussion by the tribunal on whether they should continue, the or the ad hoc committee, whether they should continue the stay of enforcement. And part of that consideration is whether Venezuela would be um, a state that would be paying the eventual award should the annulment be dismissed. And the tribunal there, or the committees there um, discussed, because this is right in the wake of Venezuela, um, you know, an, renouncing ICSID, Um, Mm. And so there was a discussion whether they would pay because they don't even think ICSID is a valid system. And there was this declaration made by the president about whether that they thought ICSID was just this hullabaloo. And these ad hoc committees kind of took took two different directions, even though they had the same facts and evidence presented before them um, on that issue. And I'm not entirely sure whether it was decided on Venezuela as a respondent state, but I know that one of the ad hoc committees, the first ad hoc committee of that two pair, said that that was a, you know, an interesting thing to take into account. And that would be obiter dicta for the second ad hoc committee to say, okay, well, they found this persuasive and maybe we should find the same thing or else we're Mm -hmm. going to have conflicting decisions.
1: Yes. And that is really
0: the the crux of the matter,
1: the conflicting decisions. And it's it's a very good example with the annulments where, by definition, the committees address the exact same provision. It's all about Article 52 of the convention that we talked about before on the podcast as well. So there I think it's a good illustration of really what we're working with is a spectrum where you have on one end the two opposing positions basically. On one end you have people saying that Uh, Investment arbitration is different from commercial arbitration. This is some sort of uh, public law paradigm. We are actually doing more than just solving commercial cases between two specific parties. It's the states in their sovereign capacity. The system would not work if we allowed uh, tribunals to do basically whatever they wanted and so on and so forth. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have maybe what we can carelessly call the commercial paradigm. And the fact that, you know, people who argue that investment arbitration is commercial arbitration because the rules applicable are the same, exactly the same, procedurally speaking, and a tribunal is only there because the parties put them there. And if they can solve the dispute in a way that makes the parties happy, basically, they have no more obligations. They don't have to think about other potential readers of the award such as subsequent tribunals or the exit Secretariat or or podcast hosts like you and I True. they only have to solve the dispute and it's sort of between these two extreme positions I think that the discussion tends to uh, oscillate
0: mm, definitely
1: but it was when we teach this in in Uppsala the case we're using which is really a classic in the field is Aes versus Argentina mm-hmm. in which the state made a number of jurisdictional objections. It's interesting to oh, contrast. That's a good
0: point. Yeah,
1: yeah, because this, this was like in 2001, 2002, you know, when all these Argentina cases mm-hmm. uh, came. And so in addition to AES versus Argentina, we also had the Vivendi cases, the CSM, the Asurix, uh, LG&E, Enron, uh, Siemens, etc., etc. So very similar cases, or at least the fact patterns were similar and often also the the underlying investment treaty. Right. Uh, so there, in that case, Argentina actually objected to jurisdiction and aes countered to the tribunal in the jurisdictional hearing saying basically well each of their objections are based on similar or identical arguments that have already been presented by argentina in very very similar cases with argentina as the respondent and in every case these arguments have been rejected by the by the previous exit tribunals right which really put the question, you know, in a very crystallized manner to the tribunal. What is the tribunal to do? Should they care about the fact that Argentina is basically copy pasting and seven other tribunals have already rejected the point, or or do they have an obligation to address it nevertheless? And to make a long story short, basically, the tribunal found that what one exit tribunal says isn't relevant to the work of another exit tribunal. So Argentina can, of course, raise the same objections, uh, even on the same facts and the same treaty if Argentina so wishes, uh, then it's, of course, another matter that it might not necessarily be convincing because they would still have to argue on those points. And yeah, it's, it's not super clear that the eighth tribunal would differ from the previous seven.
0: <laughs> I think it's because that kind of situation would actually happen in the commercial context as well. in the fact that some institutional rules don't provide for joinder or. Um, So if you have kind of four parallel cases that have the same respondent, but four different claimants, and then you ask to join the proceedings and they don't get joined for whatever reason, the institution actually does a pretty good job, depending on the institution, that if there isn't a joined provision or the parties don't agree that they can maybe appoint the same arbitrators or that the um, you know, they have some sort of interest in expediency within the institution where, as I feel like in the investment case, they are less willing to allow that to happen. They're not going to appoint the same chair in all of the Argentina cases, for example.
1: Well, it has happened, I think, a few times. But the problem is, I think, typically that the treaties are different. So, so uh, they can't and, be joined. And, Yeah. uh, I mean, they they could if the parties agreed to it, which they typically do not. But even if they did, it would be complicated because you would have very similar but still different treaties. And in most commercial scenarios that you described, it's the sort of the same contractual relation. It might be yeah, yeah, the same contract or at least some sort of similar contractual arrangement, maybe with different specific contracts, but within the same sort of transaction or the same right. commercial relationship, basically, Right. I think. But one interesting thing that the in the Argentina case here, uh, this is something I ask my students. Uh, the tribunal in AES versus Argentina, they relied a lot on Article 53 of the Exit Convention, which provides that the award shall be binding on the parties. And there are, I, I think, two ways of reading that phrase. And the tribunal obviously read it, and so I think would most, as saying that the award shall be binding on the parties, i.e., by exclusion, not binding on anybody but the parties. Mm -hmm. Whereas you can also read it emphasizing the binding part, so saying that the award shall be binding on the parties, which is, of course, a different purpose. It's basically saying that there's no... Because it's it's located, Article 53, of course, it's located just after the annulment committee uh, article 52 and the article 54 on enforcement. So systematically, it makes sense to have that article saying, the award is binding full stop. Whereas many actually read it as saying it's, it's binding on the parties only. Right. And I don't think I, I'm guessing there's a schroyer uh, article somewhere, or probably a commentary addressing this. But my point is that you can read it both ways. and I'm not super convinced that it's necessarily the case that Article 53 means that it's only binding on the parties. Although, of course, that is the common understanding. There's there's no use in trying to get an award enforced against somebody else than the parties.
0: No, but it also, could that have any effect on you know the rest judicata effect of an in, investment award?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is, I guess, the resuticata provision, really. Right. Saying that it has a rescue on the party, so that if, if it is annulled, it is no longer binding on the parties. Right. Basically. but And also, I'm, I'm sticking with this case, and there are maybe uh, two dozens more that are as relevant, but they... they The tribunal in this case also added a a, a polite caveat at the very end of its analysis, and I'll quote this because I think it's useful. So even though they said there is no binding precedent, in theory, we could ignore all the previous exit cases because we're only looking at the case uh, that is in front of us. They also added, from a more general point of view, one can hardly deny that the institutional dimension of the control mechanisms provided for under the exit convention might well be a factor in the longer term for contributing to the development of a common legal opinion or jurisprudence Mm constant to resolve some difficult legal issues discussed in many cases in as much as these issues share the same substantial features and this is interesting i think because this is 2002 or something like that we've had at that point not that many cases and here they they set up a discussion that i think is occurring now which is a good cue to your venezuela example that now we have so many more cases that the situation for many commentators and I think also practitioners is now a little bit different simply because there's now such a big body of case law, which wasn't the case. The Argentina cases were really the first time this happened. Right. Now it's very different.
0: But then you have the potential for bad law, which is another thing that we broke uh, brought up in our article, which is that people were talking about the continuous state of enforcement as being an automatic right of the party seeking um, to resist enforcement. And the problem was in a lot of tri- our committees referenced that this jurisprudence constant as like as a term that they could then rely on what everyone else was doing before them. That's basically do you, what, do they're you know saying. what What that is. What is what? Jurisprudence constante. Do I know what it is? Yeah. It's just it's actually... everyone else is doing it. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a very layman's translation. But it's, there are
1: a lot of people who, who actually who, who have written about this, most prominently, I think, Andrea Bjorklund and also Gabriel Kaufmann-Kohler, because as the name would suggest, it's a, it's a French concept, I think. Uh, right. Initially. But the point is basically that there's, unlike in common law, it's not enough that you have one court case on the relevant point and you uh, have to follow that case unless you can distinguish your own case. But you need a critical mass. Of consistent cases mm. so there's no formal binding effect but if you if you've amassed over, over the course of the legal development a number of cases that go to the exact same result
0: then that becomes binding right so it's like precedence
1: light yeah exactly I find that uh, very appealing the problem of course is w- when have you reached that critical point right and in the in the arbitration context it's more complicated because we have which I think would be the case in any system, uh, basically, where you had more than 10 cases, you won't find a critical mass because you'll have seven cases going one way and three cases going the other way. Is that enough? Or do you have eight, two, or even
0: nine, one in order to have a constant jurisprudence? (laughs) And then what warrants a deviation from that? I mean, at what degree of of difference between the two cases warrants a deviation because you could be in a case where the parties are arguing this is a completely different case and then the court says jurisprudence constant and then they just continue going on so it's like at what point do you just the court or the tribunal or the committee deviate from that i i i see that and it's it's like a way for a civil law lawyer to digest a common law principle is like let's not have it be anything but we'll still talk about it and give it a term
1: yeah, but that is the the nature of arbitration in many ways. Right, right. <laughs> but it's interesting. I think it's 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 good that we have this discussion now be, because things are, I think, changing a little bit uh, as is often the case with treaty arbitrations right now. I was at a seminar in in London before I went back when when Martins Paparinskis, a small smart Latvian public international lawyer who also knows a lot about arbitration. I think it was him. If not, I'm sorry to the person who actually said this smart thing. But he, he mentioned that the the problematic aspects of any dispute resolution system, and he was talking about international law specifically, uh, can be managed. You can manage the problematic aspects as long as the caseload remains relatively limited, then then it's manageable. But there is a critical point where you have so many cases that the problematic aspects become harder to ignore. And I think it's clear that, that investor state dispute settlement is now way beyond that point unlike maybe when the Argentina cases first came through. That's true. I think we have so many cases now, basically that, uh, and so few legal provisions, once again, that come up that you can basically find support in case law. You would know this as an associate mm-hmm. researching submissions for, for most interpretations of FET, MFN, indirect expropriation, jurisdictional points, what have you, yeah. if you dig long enough, you'll find any number of cases that at least with a crowbar, you can get in to support your argument. That wasn't the case 10, 15 years ago.
0: That's true. I remember working on a case and I was like, I can't find anything. And my, and my senior was like, you will find something that supports this. <laughs> uh, yeah. Did you? Of course. Oh, uh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> no, I, th- I I agree with you. I think it is a, a valuable topic and I think it is something that needs to be discussed so that there is some sort of best practice um, on this type of of this type of issue, because I don't, I, as a, as a counsel and you know a consultant to my client, I want to be able to predict the outcome of a lot of as best I can of a lot of decisions, and to have the uh, precedential value of a certain case or a certain line of cases be determinative on the tribunal's interpretation of the value of precedent as a on a philosophical level. Um, yeah, it would be nice to know where everyone's heads at. Yeah, which is not the case as of now.
1: We we have no one hundred percent certain clear law cases. No, no Roe v. Wade like major Supreme Court cases no. that we all know is good law. There's not a single investment arbitration award that is, you know, that that much of a guiding light. Right. So we can talk forever about this, but what is desirable? Uh, is, is the, the, a very long discussion, but I think an accurate summary of where the situation stands as of today is, one, there is no binding precedent, and two, tribunals nevertheless, de facto, significantly rely on previous awards, primarily because parties do it, basically. Right. For example, I think, but but don't know, really, mostly because they have not been concluded yet, that unlike the Argentina situation no investor is trying to prevent Spain or the Czech Republic to rely on other renewable cases, at least not on the ground that there is no precedent, so they cannot rely on them. Instead, what we see is, of course, that both parties and the tribunal engage extensively with the cases rather than saying that they don't matter, so they shouldn't be in here. So I think we've moved beyond that. Yeah, and let me just finally say once again that we should remember also that there's more than arbitration, if, if you challenge or recognize and enforce an award, you have to go to domestic courts.
0: Right.
1: And when the, when the forum is domestic court, then precedent may very well be applicable within that jurisdiction. And we also, of course, have interstate arbitrations, which we, by the way, have so far stayed away completely from in this podcast, but which we have to address, I think at some point, because that is also arbitration and as such covered by the scope of this podcast. But in, in general international law, the situation is, is very similar, but also very different from what we just been talking about. There's no doctrine of precedent, of course, but in certain circumstances, judicial decisions are actually formally a source of law under mm-hmm. international law. But for that, we might have to bring back ICJ correspondent Bruno and have a separate <laughs> segment on what, what what is the content of international law and, and how should arbitrators deal with it.
0: Right. And we could also flag that domestic court decisions are considered a matter of fact for the purposes of international arbitration, but can have some sort of value in the determination of liability and damages um, in, mm-hmm. in the arbitration.
1: Unless we, we have, I think, an interview lined up on, on applicable law and conflict of laws and in international arbitration. I think it's an interesting question. Mm. If, if the treaty in an, in a treaty case actually provides that the tribunal shall apply domestic law X then what you just said isn't true. I would argue because Mm -hmm. then the tribunal has to apply the law of domestic state x and and then of course, what what courts in state x have been saying? uh, What treaties say that?
0: What treaties say that? I
1: think that that's happened. Yeah. Okay, I can't I can't give you any examples. So maybe it hasn't, but I'm I'm fairly certain. fairly certain they would. But that's, that's a, that's a different kind of discussion. when it comes to applicable law, we'll have plenty of time to revisit that because that is very, very interesting. Ah, But now, somewhere around here, there's a beer. So let's, let's move on to happy fun time. Oh, that sounds good. (laughs) Are we even recording, Brian?
0: Yeah, I pushed record, but don't worry, we'll edit anything. Oh, okay. um, it's just to get <laughs> yeah, us this a, a casual <laughs> intro.
3: <laughs> okay, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, that's good to know.
0: That's
1: the way we roll. Let me first say, you know, on the air officially, a big mia culpa because the MAA has already been mentioned on the podcast when I when I said <laughs> eh, expressly why are they there when we were talking about the on Central <laughs> Working Group meeting where we met uh, for the first time. And, and uh, then I realized that was not a very polite thing to say. So but by way of apology, I'm sorry.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no apologies necessary. Um, I, I, I also found it, um, I was definitely out of my depth for sure. I was, I, I generally have sort of imposter syndrome, but I was definitely feeling, feeling out of my depth in, in Vienna for sure. So no apologies necessary.
1: And I think I mean you were not alone though. There's a long row of observers where you sort of get the impression that it's it's not super clear uh, who is there and why. But is it is it um, formally something that the Moot Alumni Association does? Because because the name sort of signals that it's a bunch of Moot alumni talking about their Moot experiences. But but uh, being present at Unzitral Reform work is a is a very you know it's a, it's a serious and. Uh, substantive thing to do.
3: Yes, that's right. Um, actually they the MAA and UNCITRAL kind of have a long a long history together. Um, and part of MAA's role is as an acting as an international liaison with the UN as a as, as a promoter of international arbitration and trade law in general. Um, and the the MA was granted something called roster consultative status with ECOSOC back in 2002. So as far as I can tell, the history of MAA being invited to UNCITRAL sessions sort of stems back quite a long way.
0: Sorry, does your review on UNCITRAL case law and decisions, I believe it said on your website, is that was it chicken and the egg, was that because you already had a longstanding relationship with UNCITRAL or did that lead to your relationship with Windsor Hall?
3: I'm not sure. Okay, full disclosure: I am just an MAA member. I'm not. Okay. I'm not really a, an official.
1: I'm, I'm just representing sure. them in the United <laughs> Nations. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, casual. Um. Anyway, uh, so I I reached out to them to try to figure out if they had any more information, and um, I couldn't find anything definitive, and nobody's been there. Um, that I talked to sort of long enough to have that information, but um, it seems like the the project that they have with the M with UNCITRAL, sorry, and Pace University to sort of promote a uniform body of case law on UNCITRAL texts might be a subsequent development. So the MAA, um, it seems like this is a, a a recent project. Gotcha.
1: Can I ask? Can I ask you a very uh, simple question is is the, the the moot in the name is that a generic moot so any moot or is it the vis moot specifically and for for people who have a relationship or experience with the, the vis moot?
3: So it is the associated with the Vis moot um, it, yeah the moot Alumni Association and it's it started back uh, I think around the third or fourth moot and which is somewhere around 1996 I think. And so, um, yes. So it is. Sorry to answer your question. Yes, it is directly associated with the best moot. Um, but I would, I would say that I would, I would encourage all those people who would like to be involved and and are sort of moot adjacent, <laughs> as um, to uh, sign up uh, and be a member if you want to, because it seems that. Uh, they're sort of open and inclusive to people who act as arbitrators or coaches, um, even if you weren't a moody yourself in, in law school. The,
1: the reason we're talking to you now and, and not two months ago is, of course, that I guess even the Hong Kong East visa is probably taking place right now, right? Or more or less like these days and next week is is the big thing in in Vienna. So is, is uh, the MAA involved during the moots as well?
3: Yes, that's right. Um, the Vis East is taking place right now. And um, generally the MAA holds various events in connection with both the Vis East in Hong Kong and also the Vis Moot in Vienna. So they put together kind of like drinks and mixers and and uh, things like that in, in connection with the moot.
1: And I'm, I guess a lot of the people involved in the MAA are also acting as... As arbitrators, or sort of being involved uh, on a personal basis in in the competition itself, too.
3: That's that's correct. Yes.
0: Do you use the phrase "mooty"? <laughs> Joel's mood adjacent, so you have to excuse
3: this. <laughs> yeah. Every chance I get. No. Um. Yeah. What? It's it's a really funny term. And actually, while we were in Vienna, um, um, someone pointed that out. I think it was, um. I, I can't remember, so I don't want to call anyone out, but um, <laughs> someone pointed out that they, the reason they never got involved with a moot when they were in law school was was because they thought it was kind of a silly thing. You know, it just sounds a little bit funny, the term moot or moot. Um, yeah, and so he was just expressing regret now that he kind of understands a little bit more about how it works. Yeah,
0: but. you might have a branding problem there. Joel doesn't really understand and I didn't really understand so I per- participated the Vis in Vienna um after I had graduated law school and I was at in my masters and I didn't really understand the magnitude of it and the magnetism of it as well I mean I was that skeptic before to be like oh this is something that's a little too a little too crazy for my taste and then you get in it and you sip the <laughs> Kool-Aid and then I'm not that person that comes back every year that flies back from all over the world to go to Vienna every year but there are people I don't know if you knew that Joel but People fly back every year um, from all over yeah, the world. Yeah, I'm
1: starting to figure that out now. I meet people here in London and in Cambridge, and it, that's a common question. Like, are you going to Vienna this year? Right. Assuming that I've I've even been to Vienna once, which which I have, but I have not been you know involved in the moot at all. So I have no obvious reason to to go in the future. But that's sort of a common assumption, and I'm guessing that all the MIA people are also in this in this community of of uh, post moot if we call it that, rather than mooties. Uh, you, <laughs> you, I, I assume you participated, Kristen. Uh,
3: I did. I Vilipe. did. And and I, like you, Brian, was totally a skeptic. And a friend talked me into it who had participated the year before. And she, she was like, no, 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 it's really great. It's an amazing experience. And um, you have an opportunity to meet so many people and go to Vienna and it will be um, really great. What she failed to mention was that it would be total and utter chaos while you were right. doing it. <laughs> what, uh,
0: can you tell us about your experience? Like who, what university you're representing and how far you went and any funny stories?
3: So I am doing a part-time law degree at the Chinese University of Hong Kong here in Hong Kong. And so I was a part of the VIST team in 2016. And um, I believe that... So we won the Vis East in 2016, and wow. we made it to the round of 32 or maybe 16 in Vienna. I can't remember anymore. Um, and, yeah, I mean, in general, it was just – it's so – you spend the whole year kind of doing all this preparation and back and forth, and then you start preparing uh, for the oil rounds, and and it's very exciting. And then it's just, yeah, kind of chaos and so exciting when you get to Vienna, and it's just – like you said, the enormity of it is just unbelievable. I think I, you really see it. Oh, sorry.
0: No, I was just saying. I think this year there's so many teams. I, I think it's in like 400. It's an insane number of teams.
3: Yeah, it's an absolute feat that they put this thing right. all together. It's amazing, and and coordinate it just logistically even. But um, there's this uh, there's this final sort of reception dinner in Vienna. And it's just this giant room filled with all these teams and people. And and I think that's when you sort of really grasp the magnitude of it. It's just a sort of, um, yeah, an unbelievable experience, really. But it's got to be
1: anticlimactic as well once once you've done it. And then it's Monday morning the week after. And spent <laughs> yeah. like, the better part of the oh, year absolutely. working around the clock on something that's just gone.
3: <laughs> absolutely. and And that when you're in it, you're so um, taking it way too seriously. Do you know what I mean? You're yes. like, just running through all of these arguments and, and, and then when it's over, it's just like, Oh, okay.
1: That <laughs> I guess that's where the MAA could come in as a, as a hangover cure for, for people who
0: <laughs> can't get enough. So what do you think was the, I mean, you guys obviously did amazingly well. What, what do you think there was a specific recipe for success? I know everyone, Die, you know would do anything to make it to those elimination rounds do you think that there was something specific that your team had or focused on that gave you guys such such success
3: i mean i think that um you might have touched on this before when you guys talked about uh, mooding previously that there that there is definitely kind of a, a formula and a strategy and a way in which you approach these this problems um so i think that's a part of it you can see it. I mean, I saw it last week in the, in the pre-moot, um, with, with some schools from, um, from Germany were here and, and you can just really see the level of training and coaching and like years of experience. And you can just sort of plug that into the, VIS formula in a way, but I really think, um, there's a large amount of maybe luck involved in terms of just right. generally how things shake out in the, in the whole, um, bracket. <laughs> so, so yeah. And I mean, the I and arbitrators, I'm guessing as
1: that. well, the, the, the people who are actually judging and what kind of questions they're, they're asking, that's got to play yeah. a big part.
3: Absolutely. And it's definitely just sort of, everybody has a different style, right? Like some people are more aggressive. Some people are more conversational. Some people, you know, there's all these different things and, and people sort of, respond differently to different styles and different strategies. So it, I think there's a, definitely a huge element of luck involved. Um, just because the, the real caliber, the high caliber of of participants involved, I mean, you can just see that it could have shook out in a lot of different ways.
0: And that's what I th- I think is the problem with it getting so big. And I don't know if you guys have a hand in this or if you know anything about this, but the bigger it gets, the more arbitrary the preliminary rounds become because you just have to a fill these people with you know tribunals. And so you basically have first rounds of 400 teams. you're, you're looking at so many arbitrators <laughs> and therefore the standard of arbitrator might dip a little low or you have you know a, a wide array you know you have a 10year academic scholar on the same tribunal as someone who's still in law school. Um, and maybe right. what are would, the, what are the formal, requirements. I, I've only been involved in, in the Frankfurt moot,
1: which is obviously much smaller, and they try to keep, I don't know, to what extent they succeed, but they have this requirement that you should have been involved practically in cases in order to be eligible to sit as arbitrators. But that wouldn't work practically, I guess, given what you just said, Brian, for the Wiesmoot, because then you exactly. would have to, to to basically get every person involved <laughs> in arbitration to sit as
0: arbitrator. At the Do you know that, Kristen?
3: Um, I don't know. I don't, in terms of what the exact criteria is. Right.
0: I think it's a lot degree,
1: but you, you hinted that you, uh, you, you were at the pre moot in, in Hong Kong Are you, or have you gone back and, and sat as arbitrator?
3: Yes, I have just, just in the, the pre moot sort of rounds and, um, which is always really fun. It's just so nice to see, um, all these young, fresh teams coming out and, and really, yeah, it's just, it's so exciting. Like I said, just the, the high caliber of arguments and, and, and level of advocacy is really amazing.
0: Does your organization help with any employment placement or does anyone contact you for potential employment?
3: So I think that if you, if you join the MAA LinkedIn group, uh, which I would encourage, I guess, um, former Moody's <laughs> listening to do. Um, it's not very robust, I have to say, but they do post jobs and internships from time to time. And I believe they might send emails and things like that as well. Um, so, I mean, whatever works or whatever helps. Um,
1: Good. So if, you, if you're listening to this during the moot or just after the moot, there is an avenue for you to to keep in touch if you're if you're feeling like you, where where did it all go
3: <laughs> yes definitely and i and i really think going back and and helping in an arbitrating capacity or helping to organize a pre-mute is also a really nice way to stay in touch and to reach out to people and to connect with other young lawyers so i i really recommend that as well i think that's a nice a nice way to stay in touch with the this arbitration community and the this community at large. But um I, I definitely want to reiterate if you if you are just mood adjacent or a moody, you should sign up on the website for the MAA if you're interested in in UNCITRAL work in general or attending the UNCITRAL sessions uh, because I just got two more emails today saying that the there are. They're looking for interest in working group six and also working group four, um, which is on e-commerce and security interests. Mm. So if you're if that strikes you as something that you want to get involved in. If you're
0: a little less nerdy, (laughs) not just into it. And that's MMA.net if you want to go and sign up and get more information on that.
3: Yes. And it's free to sign up. So why not? And you can just get emails about that. And um, if you're interested, you can send your CV to the details there and a cover letter about why you would like to attend those sessions.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much, Kristen. And now you, I, I, I guess you may go to bed in Hong Kong now. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
3: yeah.
0: thank you so much.
3: Yeah, I just want to say you guys are doing a great job with the podcast and we really appreciate it. And it's, yeah, you're just doing a great job.
0: Thanks a lot. Thank you. We'll talk soon.